Welcome back, or if it's your first time, I'm glad to have you here. I'm Matt Fendora, and you're tuned in to the Choose to Live, Love, and Grow podcast, where we journey together toward becoming the best version of ourselves. Using mind, body, heart, and spirit as the anchors of our podcast, join me as we set sail into the depths of self-discovery, unraveling the interconnected layers that shape our growth. If you resonate with today's conversation, consider subscribing to the podcast. Your support means the world to us and ensures you never miss an empowering episode. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Choose to Live, Love, and Grow podcast, a podcast all about being the best version of yourself through mind, body, heart, and spirit. Today, I'm here with Dr. Louis Cathy Zhang. Dr. Louis Cathy Zhang is a certified integrative life coach and hypnotist, hospice and palliative care doctor, and host of the Purpose Filter podcast, the show that shares deathbed wisdom and actionable shortcuts to live a more meaningful life. Her mission is to share the lessons of the dying to help us focus on what's truly important so we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilling lives while we still have time to enjoy them. Some of her proudest accomplishments include running a 5K, going back for fellowship training, traveling solo in 2015 and 2017, becoming a doctor, and starting her own podcast and business. What makes her heart sing? Watching people realize just how amazing they truly are. Real, raw displays of human emotion and behavior, kindness and generosity of spirit, warm sunshine on a brisk day, watching little kids laugh and dogs be dogs, writing with a really great pen for the first time, witnessing people overcome challenges, and helping people believe in themselves. Without further ado, here's Dr. Louis Kathy Zhang. How are you doing today, Kathy? I am doing great. Thank you for having me on here, Matt. And uh, yeah, I... Sorry, I was a little verbose on that form um, and those answers, <laughs> but it is what it is. I'm I am who I am. Yeah, no, I appreciate it because you're just you you start off this podcast with being authentic, and that's like the most important thing of anything, right? Of just living is being authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love how one of my proudest accomplishments is just running a five k. <laughs> but I, I, I was very proud of that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a story that everybody has their their things that even we, we feel like they're small, but they're actually super powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. that's just one step in your journey, because next is going to be what, a 10K half marathon? Yeah, I'm training for a half marathon this year. So I, I just jumped in off the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so one of the first questions I wanted to ask you was. When you beca- decided to become a doctor. Why did you focus on becoming a hospice and palliative care doctor? And what exactly do they do? Mm. So I actually uh, trained in internal medicine for my residency. And I worked as a hospitalist, which um, is basically a physician who takes care of patients who are sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. And we are essentially their primary care or their primary doctor in charge in the hospital. And I did that for several years and I really enjoyed it. And at a certain point, I realized that I was just not getting the kind of meaning and fulfillment and really the patient interactions that I wanted from that position and that job and career. I would have 15, 20, sometimes even more patients to see a day. And with that kind of load, you really don't get to spend 
more than, I don't know, five, 10, 15 minutes with a patient, which just isn't enough time. And so I started hearing and seeing my colleagues who were doing palliative care in the hospital, started to get a little bit more interested. And honestly, it took me probably two years, maybe even more to really finally decide like, okay, I'm going to go back into fellowship, into training for palliative care and hospice. And the field of and the field of hospice and palliative care is really to care for seriously ill and or terminally ill patients. So it's really, you know, cancer is a big one, but it's also heart disease and terminal lung disease and renal failure, kidney disease, patients on dialysis, all of this stuff. And I wanted to do that because at some point I felt like I was just patching people up, you know, like at a, at a auto mechanic shop, not to compare humans and cars, but um, I felt like I was just patching people up and sending them back home and not really getting into the thick and the meat of things and the difficult conversations, which I knew we had to have, but I just felt like I didn't have the experience. I didn't have the know-how and I was just totally uncomfortable with having those conversations. And so I went back into fellowship, came out, started my job, uh, my current job in palliative care, August of 2019. And I've been doing it ever since. And I, I love it. I love palliative care. I love hospice. I was always one of those people who was like, I don't think medicine is a calling. It's just a job and that sort of thing. And now I actually feel like it's a calling, which is really, really cool. Mm -hmm. I feel like there has to be some kind of emotional difficulty doing that job because you see your patients, you you see them all the time. And then next thing you know, you're not going to see them anymore. How do you handle that? It's a really great question. And part of it comes with experience. I've been doing this for, you know, four years now. I'll tell you, one of the very first patients that I took care of in fellowship, she was just about my age. She looked just like me. Um, she was an only child with two parents, also from an, you know, an immigrant Chinese family and our names were really similar. And so literally it just felt like I was staring at me and she was dying. She actually was dying. And I had to be both the, her doctor and her interpreter because her parents didn't speak any English. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling her mom that, you know, she didn't have very much longer to live and that um her father the you know her yeah that to ask him to come to the hospital as soon as he could to come and see her and she was like oh it's going to take him a while to come to the hospital and i said i i'm not sure i understand you guys live like 10 minutes away and so by car and she goes well he doesn't speak the language he doesn't know how to use the bus so he would have to walk here and it would take him like an hour or more. And so I just remember going into like a corner of the intensive care unit and just, I was bawling because I, I didn't know how to deal with it. And through a lot of practices that we nurture in palliative care, we talk a lot and we process a lot of emotions as a group to help us really understand that what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, our attachment to patients is just a normal part of not only providing care for them as a hospice and palliative care person, but 
as a human being, right? There's no way that we can do this work without feeling something. And that's why it's always so important. And that's why I always ended my podcast episodes with take care of yourselves and take care of each other, right? Because the best way for us to provide really excellent care for other people, whether that's in the hospital or not, is to make sure that we're doing okay as well. Because we can't pour from an empty cup, you know? Yeah. So a lot of time, what I've noticed is a lot of times when we have this really difficult thing that has consumed our attention, we take that we we can either let that hold us back or we change that energy and create something beautiful out of it. So is that why you decided to become a life coach and start your podcast was from these scenarios of all this emotional disarray? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in part. I realized that every time I was talking to a patient or a family member that I was learning so much about life, about their regrets, about what they wish they would have done, about how they feel like they you know, really lived a wonderful life and what that entailed. And so I was so curious about what decisions people make, what actions they take, what thoughts they have that led them to either feeling like, okay, I'm ready to go. I lived a really great life or, oh no, you know, I need more time. I haven't done this, this, and this. And so I thought, you know, if I could just take these lessons at the end of life, and shift them up decades earlier, 10, 20, 40 years, then maybe people wouldn't necessarily feel regret. They wouldn't feel these emotions that I was trying to help my patients with. And so that kind of came about with the podcast. And then I thought, okay, well then if I could have tangible ways of coaching people, whether it's through integrative coaching, through my hypnosis practice now, and that sort of thing, to really help people bridge the gap between where they currently are in life and where they want to be. And I was like, okay, then that just feels like a really great mesh of everything that I've done and can help people with. If there were, let's say, three of either the most impactful or the three most common answers that you hear from your patients of what they could have done better, or if they live with any regrets, what would those three things be? So most people have some sort, so you may have heard of the five regrets of the dying. It's by a hospice nurse named Bronnie Ware, and she wrote a book about it. Um, And most, all of them have something to do with connection. It's either connection to self, something like I wish I had listen to myself and been the person that I wanted to be instead of, you know, catering to other people's desires and needs. So that's connection to self in a sense. And then there's connection to others. Like I wish I'd spent more time with my friends and family things and other patients will tell me, you know, I wish I had even let myself be loved. Right. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd felt worthy enough for people to care for me instead of pushing them away. That's something really common that I see. And I and partly because I work at a safety net hospital um, and we see a lot of immigrants, a lot of undocumented patients, a lot of people who are homeless or who really don't have any social connections of any sort. And so 
that is really poignant for me. And a lot of people say, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. We live in the society that champions success and accomplishment and go, go, go. And a lot of times people fall into that and feel like they have to do that and don't nurture the relationships that they actually want to nurture. And at the end of life, all really people want is connection. Mm -hmm. I can definitely see where that's coming from. I think we're still trying, I think we're getting a little better, but we're still so focused on, you know, providing and caring. And then this is who you are, who you have to be, and you have to provide. And so that means you have to work countless hours, you know, and if you're not staying busy, then what are you doing? You're just lazy and boring. And I think we're so caught up in that, that we are missing that aspect of the connection, the love for yeah. yourself even. Absolutely. And you talk about this too. I mean, your podcast is catered towards young men in a sense, right? And I think men, especially in society, are supposed to take on the traditional role of being a provider. And I mm -hmm. hear that a lot from you know, men, it doesn't matter their sexuality, but they feel like they have to provide and they feel that as a provider, they can't show weakness or they can't be emotional or they can't be vulnerable or um, they have to be perfect and they always have to get the job done, et cetera. And that is damaging not only to the men themselves, but everyone around them too. Mm-hmm. People, men especially, start equating their achievements to their worth. And they forget that it does, that there is no connection there. It's simply you who you are. You are worthy no matter who you are, no matter what you are. Like you're worthy of love from others and from yourself. And it's not based off of achievements and accolades and titles and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it takes a lot of unlearning and intentional dismantling to get that message in, or maybe to remember that maybe we remember, we had it at one point and because of conditioning and culture and all of this stuff, we've forgotten it or we've strayed from it in a sense. Mm -hmm. So my next question is as a life coach, we often try to find these other tools and resources that we can have that we can um, teach other people on, use to help people make their, their breakthroughs and just be better individuals. So of all the things, why did you choose hypnosis? Yeah, it's a great question. I kind of fell into hypnosis. I took a coach training from this coach that I follow on social media, and she brought in her hypnosis teacher and her name, um, our hypnosis teacher is Melissa Tears, who's, I didn't know at the time, is a big deal in the hypnosis world. And she basically showed us, um, and I really liked this too, because I'm a physician, I'm about science and I learned neuroanatomy and all this stuff. And she talked to us about the unconscious mind, which is basically subconscious, unconscious mind. Estimates are about 95 to maybe 97% of our nervous system of our collective, of our consciousness in a sense. And how much of that really governs how we act, how we feel, how we respond to anything in our lives, which is why 
I love it so much because, you know, there's a point where you're like, you know, I really know I should be doing this thing, or I know I shouldn't procrastinate, but I can't help myself from doing it anyway. Right. And it's that, that conscious part of our brains goes, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but I, I just can't help myself or I can't seem to not do it. And beneath all of that is the unconscious mind, which is governing all of that. And a lot of that is from childhood experiences, right? And so when we are exposed to certain words, certain emotions, certain experiences, whether that's good, bad, traumatic, as a child, that becomes so rooted in our nervous systems that when we get reminded of something similar as an adult, even if it's not related, then we react the same way in a sense. And so that's how I got into hypnosis. And I love it because it creates change so much faster than things like I was getting, which was coaching, therapy. I love all those modalities and they work and I'm a huge supporter of them. And sometimes going to the unconscious mind and really getting into the weeds and getting deep in there really creates change that people are like, I, I don't even know how you did this. This is amazing. I had one client who was like, I've done a year of therapy and this one session was better than an entire year of therapy, which is amazing, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're doing one of these sessions, are you searching for that phrase or that situation? Mm -hmm. So specifically, I try to get very, very detailed with, let's say someone is like, oh, I have trouble. I get really, really anxious when I need to drive because I was in a car accident before. And so then what I do is basically get a very detailed and specific moment when their brain, because our brains are just pattern, it, it's just neuro like it's wiring, it's pattern recognition, all this stuff. And so our brain recognizes a pattern that then sends a particular signal and cascade of emotions, right? Oh, I see, I see my car keys and I start getting nervous, something like that. And so then when we can get a very specific moment, then we can kind of divert the brain from going down that cascade of becoming anxious towards something that's more empowering or more helpful for the person specifically. And so through that, then there's different techniques to help calm ourselves down um, to that I give my clients and teach them so that in the moment, because, you know, as coaches, we can't be with them all the time that in the moment when they start to recognize, oh my God, I'm getting anxious, that they can do something to calm themselves down so that they feel like, okay, I have a little bit more control over the situation and I can do something about it, you know? And then there's a lot of hypnosis and unconscious things that we do. And again, hypnosis, I think gets a really bad rap because people think, you know, someone's on stage, they're going to hypnotize you and you're going to, I don't know, like take off your underwear and crack like a quack like a duck or something like that. That's not it. It honestly really is just like a relaxation moment. It's you're kind of just meditating in a sense. And everyone has been hypnotized. If you've ever watched a movie and found yourself crying, 
because of what you were watching in the movie, you've been hypnotized in a sense, because you have to dissociate from yourself enough to believe what is happening on screen for you to have an emotional reaction to it. Right. And so a lot of people are like, I don't think I can be hypnotized. And it's like, well, okay, there's different levels of it, but everyone in some way is hypnotizable. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. I never thought of it in, in the way of just simply watching a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. Or like um, recently I get a lot of, you know, Instagram reels or Facebook videos where there's the, uh, these guys who clean driveways or clean rugs. And I'm like, why am I spending 18 minutes watching this video? I can't look away. Right. That's you're kind of in a trance mm -hmm. because I'm like, I cannot look away. I don't want to really be doing this, but it's so mesmerizing. And that, in a sense, is being hypnotized, too. Hmm. In the one of the examples you said was um, procrastination. So how how do you find where that originated from? Because, I mean, if people really are like really bad procrastinators, it's in everything that they do. So how do you find that root cause to help them get through, get over that procrastination? Mm -hmm. And it's a great distinction because you said it's kind of everything that they do, right? And so the analogy that we like to use is uh, a tabletop with legs. And so let's say I procrastinate sending emails, which I do. Um, me procrastinating on sending emails could be one table leg. And if I can work with a coach who can help me stop procrastinating on sending emails, then the tabletop of procrastination then loses a little bit of stability. It doesn't have as much of a hold in the brain, right? So mm -hmm. say another table leg is procrastinating on finishing a work report, something like that. And then if we can knock down different table legs, then essentially the tabletop collapses, right? The thing is, is that for many things, let's say procrastination, for a lot of people, there could be many, many, many different table legs that are holding that one thing up. And so the really great thing about the brain is once you know how to work with it, because the brain is trying to conserve energy, the brain uses about 20% of the body's oxygen consumption just for something that doesn't even have that much mass. In, in a sense. And so the brain wants to conserve energy and it generalizes things. It says, oh, you procrastinate on this thing. I'm going to spread it out everywhere and it'll just save me energy and we'll just deal with it that way, even though we don't want to. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then if we can work with the brain and say, oh, you're going to spread this out everywhere. We're going to spread something else that is good for us, that helps us feel better about procrastination, whether it's gratitude, whether it's productivity or something, some other emotion or state of being that feels empowering and helpful. If we can spread that over the tabletop, then it's so much easier to kind of collapse the table and the table legs, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. When you started saying that, I started envisioning your first example where the person got into a car crash. And so I envisioned that as, hey, whatever leg this is, it's bolted into the ground. 
And once you start working on that, you're actually loosening up the bolts. You knock that one thing out, and then that's when this table starts to wobble and you can start knocking down the other legs. But there's that one key thing that you're searching for. And I think if I'm not mistaken, that's what you do as a hypnotist is you're searching for that while working on the other things. Yeah. And, um, it, and it's not just hypnosis. It's a certain way of relating all of these things together so that the brain and the neural circuitry actually changes so that we're not fixated on this recurring pattern of anxiety or procrastination or overwhelm or fear or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. <laughs> Could you walk us through what a typical session would look like? Uh, yeah. So let's say I've never met the person before. I will kind of give a spiel at the beginning um, and explain a little bit of the neurobiology, the neuroanatomy of how thoughts and, and emotions, feelings, behaviors work and why our brain gets into a loop sometimes. And so basically anything that is thought of or behaved um, with repetition becomes a pattern. Let's say the thought is, uh, I'm not smart enough, right? And so if we say, I'm not smart enough, I'm not smart enough, it's like we're driving a car down a road, which is a neuropathway, you know, firing in the brain called, and the road is called, I'm not smart enough. And the more we think I'm not smart enough, the more we replay that in our brain, that road becomes two lanes, three lanes, four lanes, a super highway, right? And most of us have been replaying the same negative disempowering emotions and thoughts for decades, maybe, right? And so then that road is so well-traveled. And because neurons that fire together are wired together, the more our brain travels down that road called, I'm not smart enough, the faster and easier it is to think that and go down that road. So even though we're like, oh, you know what? I don't want to think that anymore. I want to believe that I am smart enough. I am good enough because that new road, let's call it, I am smart enough, has not been traveled on very much at all because it's new. The brain wanting to conserve energy again is going to go down the superhighway. Mm -hmm. Why would you travel down a road that is difficult when you've got a superhighway right there? Right. And so, what the aim, what I guide the client through is okay, as soon as I can get that one trigger that your brain says, oh, that's the beginning of us going down the road of I'm not smart enough. And we say, Okay, then we can do a pattern interrupt. We have to put a roadblock in that highway and say, no, 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 we're not going down this road anymore. We need to divert you somewhere. And the more that we do that and pattern interrupts can be anything. I once had someone do a pattern interrupt on me. I was going down talking about my problems and a problem state. And she basically just... Um, almost tried to swallow her zoom camera. So like she moved in really close and all I saw were her tonsils. And I was like, Oh my God, what's going on right now? And, but because I was so surprised by it, I stopped immediately going down that road. And then she was able to divert me into something that was a little bit more helpful for me. 
And so a pattern interrupt can be something like that, unconventional for sure, but it can be something just like taking a break, stepping out of your office, going for a walk outside, doing breathing exercises or other things that I, you know, tapping, if anyone knows emotional freedom mm -hmm. techniques, that's a really great pattern interrupt when your nervous system is really amped up and you're fidgeting and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And so the more that we put a roadblock in the middle of the road, in the superhighway, and we can divert it, that neural impulse, that neural pathway, just slowly will start to become less and less used. And if you do it right, like you can, it can be really fast. It can happen in one session. I can, I've done it with some clients who, you know, 15 minutes later, they're like, okay, cool. I don't, I'm, I'm good with this one. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> you know, I think people feel really scared because they think change has to be difficult and that it has to take a long time, but that's not true. Mm -hmm. So when you started talking about um, that, the initial process of somebody who's creating these super highways, right? I started thinking of someone, but I also know that person would be stubborn enough not to go to a, a hypnotist. So what is that middle ground of either getting somebody to go or helping them enough to, to essentially get them to go seek help? Honestly, the answer is not probably what we would want to hear. But if someone isn't ready, it's really hard to get them to be ready. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about palliative care is that, and hospice, is that a lot of people, once someone in their lives gets really sick, or they themselves get sick, or they their life is threatened some way, or they lose a loved one, are get to a point where they're like, some, everything or something has to change. I can't go on like this. And it was always really fascinating to me because I'm like, you know what? It's not as if someone that you love dies and then you magically acquire the skills or the know-how to, let's say, quit smoking. It's not that. It's because death and dying is a huge pattern interrupt. It is a huge wake-up call in your life. And because it is charged with so much emotion, then those two things together combined will jolt someone to be like, I need to change. Not tomorrow, not 10 years from now, like today, right now. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, is that you can manufacture that for yourself in a sense. It's going to probably take a little bit longer, but, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be that it happens on the back of someone that you love is no longer with you or that you had a life or death experience and now you're like, no, things have to change. And so that's also why I got into this. And so the answer to your question is if they're not ready, there's not a lot that you can do. You can try and you know send resources their way books, podcasts, articles, that sort of thing. And I find that honestly, the best way for me is to be there to support them when they are ready and to be an example of what's possible when you do yourself go out and find help. 
And people will see that the ripple effect of what we do and how we show up in the world affects other people as well. Mm-hmm. I feel that literally reminded me of one of my most important leadership traits that we had in the military was lead by example. It's not do as I say, it, it's I'm going to show you how to do it and you should be doing it too, not just do what I say, look the other way, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the military does teach so many really great values and lessons for people. And I think that's certainly one of them to be able to be like, you know what, you can do as you want. You're an adult and I'm going to lead. I'm going to do me. I'm going to lead by example. And you can choose to follow or not. Are there any other success stories that you could share, whether that's based off of your clients or off of your own experience? Mm. Um, I have a, I'll, I'll try not to share too many details because um, I want it to be vague and that sort of thing, but I've had clients let go of traumatic experiences from let's say workplace incidents previously and that were very dis described as very very toxic and manifesting and showing up in their current lives even though their workplace trauma was from years and years and years ago right but because it was traumatic because there was a lot of emotion and negative emotion associated with it it takes root even deeper in our nervous system. And all of this happens unconsciously. It's not like we say, oh, um, hey, nervous system, you're going to really like dig into this particular thing. It just happens. It's the same when we have events when we're kids. All of this is unconscious. We can't control it. And so they were able to let go of that and you know, feel like they were just able to move forward, that this thing wasn't holding them back anymore. And they knew it. They knew it to an extent, but they just didn't know how to let it go or how to release it or how to be released from its hold, even though they desperately wanted to. How long did that take to get through from start to finish to, hey, like that realization of it's not holding me back anymore? It depends. Like I have, I've had maybe one client who, you know, we, we, I didn't even know she brought it up at the end of a session and I didn't even know that this was a thing. And then we did a process and she's like, Oh my God, I feel so much lighter. How much of that was it like completely gone? I, you know, I don't necessarily know this is um, like still an ongoing relationship. So, but you could see visibly that even physiologically, like her shoulder slumped and she was just like, oh my God, I feel so much better. And like, there's a weight off of their shoulders. I, I had another client who, I don't know, I think it was like maybe a few sessions and that sort of thing, but it really varies with each person. Some people are more hypnotizable than others. Some people are more willing to dive into the process than others. So uh, it really depends on the person. Okay. One of the examples that you said when it came to the stigma that is hypnosis is that example of that prankster who does something on the stage and just makes everybody laugh. The one that I always envision when I think of hypnosis 
is the one where a guy taps on somebody's neck and makes him talk like a Martian. Like he's from a different world. Um, how do we know that the sessions that we're going through are safe? Is there some kind of safeguard method to ensure that, you know, something like that doesn't happen when you don't realize it? Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that what you see on stage is literally called stage hypnosis. And it is meant to convince people, audience and or the subject that hypnosis does work in a sense, because these people would never, if they were conscious, well, they're still conscious, but they're not, they're, um, a little bit more in a trance. They're more suggestible in a sense. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if um, I hypnotize you and you just lose all control of your bodily functions. It's just that you are more suggestible mm -hmm. in a sense. And because we are accessing the unconscious mind, your general barriers of defense to be like, that's ridiculous. I would never do that are lowered. And so that's why people end up you know, speaking like a Martian on stage in front of hundreds of people in a sense, whereas normally they would be like, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. And so in a session, so I'm not a stage hypnotist. I'm uh, a, I'm not a hypnotherapist because I'm not technically a therapist. So I can't call myself that because of licensing issues. So I'm a hypnotist. And for those sessions, you're awake. It's basically like you're in a meditative state I can speak with you, you can answer me, and you know essentially what you're doing. And so it is a misconception that hypnosis makes you lose control, whereas actually hypnosis allows you to access more of your mind and nervous system to allow you to be in even more in control. Um, there's a hip, uh, there's a guy who his name is David Spiegel and he's super well known in the clinical hypnosis world and that is how he describes it and that's exactly what it is. Understandably so, this that's not the only stigma and myth that's around hypnosis. If you could demystify three common myths about hypnosis, what would they be? Mm. So that would be probably the first one that you lose all control. That's not true. It really allows you to access parts of your brain, your mind, you want to call it your inner knowing or your gut feeling or anything like that. It really gives you more control over yourself, over your mind, that sort of thing. Um, like I've hypnotized people and their pain will drop from like a seven to a three in minute in minutes with no nothing else aside from just speaking and using the mind and unconscious metaphor and things like that pain right mm. i'm a pain doctor and i usually need to give people opioids for them pain medicine for their pain to go from a 7 to a 3 and so if you can do that with just speaking and hypnosis and some relaxation mm -hmm. like how cool is that yeah. Right. And so that's one misconception. Um, I would say another one is that, you know, it takes a really long time and that's not necessarily true either. It can happen very quickly because, you know, you're 
dealing with the unconscious mind. You're not like in therapy. I love therapy, but like, because I'm talking to you and my mind is going, sometimes your mind won't let you go to a certain place. Right. And mm -hmm. then you're just like, I've been in therapy for a while and we've just been talking in circles. And it may not be that the therapy isn't working. It may be that there's a part of you and your nervous system and your body that isn't allowing you to go there because it's too painful mm -hmm. to talk about. And so by going to the unconscious mind, it really allows people to bypass that. And hmm, a third one, um, I would say a third one, I'd say those are probably the two biggest ones about hypnosis. I will think of the third one. If it comes to me, I'll tell you later. Okay. Is there a such thing as self-hypnosis? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, you can find, you know, in a sense, if you think about it, meditative practices, especially if you Google or YouTube something like meditation for abundance or self-confidence and that sort of thing. A lot of those are really hypnosis hmm. because you're just in a slightly more relaxed state. You're a little bit more suggestible, that sort of thing. Um, and that is super helpful because not everyone has the budget to hire a hypnotist. Not everyone is comfortable talking to some stranger on the internet about mm -hmm. their problems and things like that. And you know, even with my clients, I don't see them every hour of every day. It's scheduled sessions regularly at intervals. And so I teach people in sessions how to do this themselves. There's things like mental rehearsals. So if you ever see Olympic mm. athletes or anything like that, mm -hmm. you mentally rehearse and see yourself hitting the tennis ball. You see yourself sliding into home base. You see yourself you know, performing your dance routine the way that it's supposed to be. And so the brain doesn't really recognize what's false, not false, but what hasn't happened between what you're mentally rehearsing, which is why that is so powerful and why so many elite athletes do that. It's because it is training the brain and showing the brain, hey, this is possible. I'm installing it so that when it actually happens, it's like, oh, I recognize this. I'm going to do this the way that you rehearsed it. And so that is a form of self-hypnosis. People just call it visualization because hypnosis sounds really scary and freaky. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That is super powerful. Just the, because we talk, we do, we, we, I've seen so much now about visualization, the importance of that, adding it into your morning routine or whatever that is. And it's just a, a form of self-hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Um, so some other questions that I have is I want people to be able to reach your podcast because it is amazing. So can you tell us what the Purpose Filter podcast is and why did you decide the podcast was the route for you? Mm. I So the Purpose Filter is basically a show about sharing deathbed wisdom lessons that I've learned caring for the dying and using what I've learned as a coach, as a hypnotist and the 
things that have helped me overcome certain challenges in my life as well to make it practical and bite-sized so that at the end of each episode, you have something concrete that you can do. And I don't like wasting people's time. I'm a New Yorker. So they're not very long episodes. Um, and I want people to be able to apply them to their life now so that when you do maybe get to see someone like me in hospice or at the end of your life, you maybe don't have as many regrets as you would have. And that was the whole goal of starting the podcast. Incidentally, I am kind of taking a break from the show right now just to reorganize some things and think about a creative vision that might be different and pursue other things. And as you know, as a podcaster, the content that you put out never really goes away. Mm -hmm. And so that content is still helpful for people and it's still relevant no matter how much time has passed by. And so, um, yeah, it's, it has been, it's taught me so much about myself, about creativity, about consistency. Oh my God, it's hard to put out a podcast <laughs> as you know, right? Yeah. So yeah, um, please take a listen to it. And I hope that it helps people because uh, I, I had a blast making those episodes. Mm -hmm. It's funny because when you said it showed you how creative you are, I had so many limiting beliefs coming into starting podcasts, which is why I put it off for so long. And then I once I just started going, like I just started shattering so many limiting beliefs that I had about myself. And I didn't even realize it. It just it made me feel more capable and that, hey, I can I can do this. Like I'm not all those things that I thought that I thought I was. Like I'm I'm so much better. I don't have to tell myself that I'm literally showing myself that I'm capable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the more that we show ourselves, then the more we believe it in a sense, right? I started the podcast, not, it, honestly, it was really a lot more for myself. I, I wouldn't say, maybe not more for myself, but I had to show myself that I could do it. And again, very similar to you, I put it off for a while because I didn't think who would listen to me. And I was like, who, why would anyone want to hear what I have to say? And that sort of thing. And um, it's been a great journey. And as you will see going forward, it just opens up a lot of doors. It teaches you so much about yourself, about other people. And it's a wonderful journey. Mm -hmm. So now that we're getting closer to the end of the podcast, I have three questions in which I ask all guests. Each question is over the topic of live, love, and grow the podcast name. So are you ready to answer these questions? Totally. Let's go. All right. So first question, what advice can you share about how to create a life that leaves a positive impact on the world? Mm. I really believe in the value of everyone's interests and what really lights them up from the inside. You started this episode off talking about authenticity. And I, for example, have a, my hairstylist loves hair. She goes to conferences to learn about coloring hair and cutting hair. And I was like, this is so cool. And she would do it even if she weren't paid. That's how much she loves it. And her light and her joy about that spreads to all of her clients and everyone. 
It's the same goes for my accountant. My accountant sits at home and will read tax law cases, <laughs> right? Like I, I used to say, you couldn't pay me to do, oh, like you could pay me, but I would just be awful at it, right? And yeah. so I hope that people, when they find something that truly lights them up, will share that with others because it is such a benefit for other people when you are in that state of being, in your element. Mm -hmm. I love it. What are some practical ways people could cultivate self-love? Mm, okay, excellent question. If it does not come naturally to you, I would say it has to become an intentional practice. Mm. If you're constantly, if you've spent 30 years being like, I hate how my thighs look in the mirror, it's going to take a, a while, maybe not as long as you think, but it's going to take some time to counteract 30 years of, as we were saying, that super highway of neural pathways going down and making a groove even deeper in your brain. And so knowing that it's not that you're broken, it's not that there's something wrong with you, it's that your brain is working the way that the brain should. And so you have to intentionally be like, okay, maybe I try to interrupt that thought and think of something different and think, hey, you know, maybe I can. I I think a lot of times people take affirmations and go straight from, you know, I'm ugly and fat to I'm beautiful. And that feels really like, oh, that that how could that be possible? How could I think that? And so maybe just saying, maybe I can one day see myself as something like that. Maybe the possibility of one day I can not procrastinate on my emails. Maybe one day I can drive to work without having paralyzing anxiety. I think adding that in makes it feel a little bit less of a jump from going from where we are to where we want to be. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you said maybe one day, because I just gave a presentation yesterday on the power of yet. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing. It's just put in the different, instead of at the end, it's put at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just leaves room for possibility. Mm -hmm. Which sometimes that's all people need is possibility. Hope. Yeah, absolutely. So the last question I have is, what is one actionable tip someone can do today to grow 1% better? Mm, okay. I would say to get clear on where you want to go or where you want to be or who you want to be. And once you're clear on that, work backwards. Let's say you want to make $10,000 a month, right? Okay, how much do you need to make, you know, in a week? How much do you need to make in a day? And that sort of thing. That, that's a lofty example, but I'm using it so that people can backtrack to then figure out what do I need to do every day to somehow hit those metrics. And then it feels a lot less overwhelming and it feels like, okay, there's something I can do. And then the thing that I always say to my clients is what is the next smallest step? 
It doesn't have to be a huge thing. The next smallest step so that you feel like you're making progress. That could be something as small as I'm going to make a list. And sometimes you can make a list and, you know, put the first thing on your to-do list as make a list and you get to cross that off. Right. And that gives you the dopamine to continue to move forward. I love it. Just have a clear vision and make, break it down. Mm -hmm. So how can people connect with you? Mm. So my website is Louie Kathy Zhang, L-U-Y-I, Kathy with a K, Z-H-A-N-G.com. I'm on Instagram at Purpose Filter, and I'm on LinkedIn as well. You can, you know, search for me and, uh, you know, we can put the show note links in the show notes. <laughs> so yeah, that's how people can connect with me. Awesome. And how can we, the audience, support you on your journey? Hmm. If you follow me on social media, if you know of anyone who you feel like this episode could be really helpful for, please share it with them. Um, if you know someone who is interested in services, that could be helpful as well. And, you know, if you want to listen to some archived episodes of the show of, of the purpose filter, that could be helpful. But honestly, just keep taking care of yourselves and take care of each other. And that would make me ecstatic. Awesome. Well, Kathy, I want to thank you for spending the time with us here today. And I know I learned a lot. This is a topic that when you first started talking about this and this was your journey, I knew nothing about it. So I was super curious and I'm really glad that we got to dive in on that topic today and hear more about you and learn, you know, deathbed wisdom. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. It's been so great watching you, you know, come through and overcome these limiting beliefs to finally have your own podcast. So congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Choose to Live, Love, and Grow podcast. I look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget to live, love, and grow to be the best version of you. Oh, and one more thing. If you or a young man that you know suffer from victim mindset or are not reaching their fullest potential, then visit mattfindora.com to see how we can work together to become the best version of ourselves. That's mattfindora.com. The link will be in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you and have an outstanding day.